This episode is Them Folks Ain't Right, and I've got one of my best friends in the world, Scott Lehman, here to talk about them, and he is absolutely the right guest for this list, because I must confess, something happened to me watching these movies. Yes, even me, with the thickest of skins, who've watched so many horrifying and torture porn and psychologically devastating movies, for some reason, this combination of movies, this list got to me a little bit. <laughs> so you might want to take with a grain of salt, you know, my position on some of these because I don't know, something something happened. But I mean, that makes this episode a little bit unique. And uh, Scott loves his horror movies. So if I'm, you know, overly traumatized or acting too, you know, hard on the movies, he's there to rein it in for the horror fans and say, relax, these are just stupid movies. <laughs> and in the end, I do agree. But yeah, I don't know. Larry's been going through some shit. What can I tell you? Uh, I can tell you this. If you have feedback to send, you can send it to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca because I'm up in Canada. And if you want something to put in your ears in the gap between episodes, I would highly recommend the Terror Table podcast and the shelf-shedding movie show hosted by Mr. Jason Dubray. These people know what they're doing, and they're friends of the podcast, so give them your ears. Let's talk about some crazy folk. So I have Mr. Scott Lehman back on the podcast, the always welcome Mr. Scott Lehman. Thank you so much for being here. Sorry. I was supposed to wait for a pause. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to me back. Yes. Glad to be back. It's always a pleasure shooting the shit about some horror movies with you. So I wanted to talk to you about this list. I mean, unless you have a better name for it, I was going to call this one like Them Folk Ain't Right, because there's sort of a theme of... uh, people who have been fundamentally broken or, uh, you know, <laughs> turned feral throughout these movies. Or fundamentally just not right. Yeah, I think that's a very fitting name. Uh, as I went through the six and then to the next one and the next one, it became more and more apparent. So, yeah, yeah, that folk just ain't right. No. <laughs> so, uh, and you do your annual Halloween sort of movie fest where you watch as many movies as you can in the month of October. And then immediately you're following it up with this. Because 
I can, I'm going to confess, I had kind of a strong reaction to all of these. And it's, you know me, man. You know I have a pretty thick skin. We did an episode on torture porn. Like, yeah, that, I, was a, that was a hilarious episode. <laughs> feels good every time. But honestly, I found a, a couple of these particularly a tough watch this time. And yeah. I don't know if it's because of me, if it's just like the wrong movie on the wrong day. Do you have that? Is it every now and then where you're just... You're not feeling the, like, super grim horror movie. You're maybe more feeling a, <laughs> I don't know, a more straightforward, fun horror movie. Every now and then. Um, I don't know. I don't really want to fault something for leaving me in a, in a weird place. And there was one of these in particular, which actually, when it was done, it just felt kind of, it just left me feeling weird or odd or something, just kind of a downer. But, um, I mean, they're not super cheerful movies. But uh, me, myself, I, I like them also, you know, grisly and, and downbeat as much as I like the fun you know, Jason Slashers. But uh, I also like something that just, like, tears me apart, too. Um, but yeah, it depends on the day as well. Yeah. If it's going to get you harder. You know, like, uh, I don't think that horror movies should always have happy endings. I don't always want happy endings. Like, I... And again, I'm not, I don't like to think of myself as kind of weak when it comes to the, you know, visceral material. It is, if I'm honest, part of what draws me to genre, especially when we were younger, it was the forbidden nature of these movies. Like, should we be seeing this? And there's been a couple times with these movies where I was like reassessing some of my choices. <laughs> Right. I'm immune to anything bothering me because I've seen so many. Uh, you know, much near, I think I only did 48 this year. I think I did 49 last year. But uh, um, the, the thing is, November, then I, I feel almost like a little movie hangover for the first couple of weeks where I just kind of take a break, visit the family again, see how they've been over the last month, and uh, see how much the kids have grown. But um, then to kind of jump back into it. Uh, I guess I will say with this type of movie, I think that it's one of those ones where people who are not fans of genre want to, like, beat us up with and say, like, how could you take entertainment out of that? I'm not going to say I don't take entertainment out of that, but I am going to say I completely understand their argument sometimes. Yeah, they're for horror fans, for people who already have established themselves as saying to you, I think, out of this collection, the most feel-good number that we have is the people under the stairs from Wes Craven. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be the only one really with some some chuckles in it, although uh, House of a Thousand Corpses may have some not 
get into it is there anything you would like to say or anything that you picked up as a theme through these six movies that you want to put on the table before we uh, let people know what we're talking about this episode and start the reviews um well i guess you can get in and, and list the uh the feel-good films we're going to be discussing and, and you're right you know them folks just ain't right these folks just ain't right all right, the six films that Scott Lehman, and thank you so much for being here, brother. I know you're bathing in the glorious afterglow of an Oilers come back from behind victory, so you're in a good place to talk about some bad movies. Or <laughs> some, some, not bad movies, but you know what I mean, ugly movies. <laughs> House of a Thousand Corpses, the debut film from Mr. Rob Zombie. We have a post-apocalyptic or like a, a new Ice Age kind of apocalypse called The Colony. We have a cult recovery thriller called Jackals. We have a film based off of a novel from Jack Ketchum. I guess it's a second in a series of four or five novels about a feral family living in Maine. Uh, this is The Offspring. Um, I have talked about on the show in the past its sequel, The Woman, and I just found out there's another sequel to it that I didn't even know existed. Would or could or should we watch that? We can discuss. Uh, Perkins 14 is a micro-budget, uh, interestingly produced movie. It was one of the uh, tail ends of the After Dark Horror Fest. I, I'm, I'm sure you must have yeah. bumped into some of those. Um, yeah, I got a bunch of those. Uh, they're usually super low-budget movies from new directors, and because of that, they run extremely hot and cold. So we're going to talk about Perkins 14, and then we can finish it off with, uh, from you know, horror master director Wes Craven, The People Under the Stairs. So them folk ain't right. That's the six movies that, that Scott and I are going to tackle. Thanks so much for being here, brother. Sounds good to me. Howdy, folks. You like blood, violence, freaks of nature? On a stormy Halloween night, four young people set out across the back roads of America. What's that? It's a hitchhiker. What, should we stop? We can't leave right here in the rain. In search of a mysterious figure known only as... Dr. Satan. Do you know anything about the legend of Dr. Satan? Yeah, I can show you. What they uncovered You ain't seen nothing yet Is the most horrifying and shocking tale of carnage ever seen Well, I bet you'd stick your head in the fire if I told you you could see hell You seen this girl? Yeah, they want to play Nancy Drew with this local legend that people call Dr. Satan Stupid kids probably got themselves lost Let's get out of this nut house The boogeyman is real From director Rob Zombie <laughs> comes a journey into hell. This can't be real, this can't be real, this can't be real. <laughs> House of a Thousand Corpses. Hope you like what you see! So, um... 
as I often have said on the podcast, I like to grade movies on what are they trying to do and how successful are they at doing it. And on that level, House of a Thousand Corpses, I do think is a successful film in that it succeeds in what Rob Zombie set out to do, is sort of do this twisted, disturbing homage to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that sort of rough, grainy 70s vibe horror movie. So on one hand, I'm going to start out saying absolutely mission accomplished, but this is a very specific meal for a very specific audience. And that audience, I think, needs to be in a very specific mood <laughs> to just sort of delve in, throw in some popcorn and, uh, and watch House of a Thousand Corpses. Everything that I've ever complained about, about a Rob Zombie movie in the past, is absolutely present here. He's remarkably consistent to me, as far as he's really good with tactile aesthetic. The feel of the movie is really, really good and solid, and, like, you feel dirty while you watch the movie in a way that's kind of impressive, like... The production of the movie, and this is consistent through his career, is absolutely there. But his sort of hillbilly Tarantino dialogue, it's never hit my ears right, you know? And his approach to this family, which of course is going to become a franchise. As far as Rob Zombie is concerned, these guys are the heroes of this film. <laughs> like... He loves the Firefly family. He thinks they're awesome, right? And as much as I can get sort of a, a, a cringy, oh my god, they went there hit out of some of these styles of movies, I prefer to not be on side with the maniacs, personally. I like to be more sympathetic to the victims. But I think he does that. I think he does that more so in the sequels. Yeah. Where we're supposed to side with him. In this one, I think we're... We're supposed to side. We're, we're entertained by him because he's created some really kooky, interesting characters. But uh, I don't. I don't think we're supposed to side and cheer for them. But we want these uh, kids. I guess they're not really kids. <laughs> we want them to eventually get up. I mean, it's a horror movie. We want to see some of them die. But uh, I don't think we're. I guess we're looking at it differently. This one, I didn't. I don't see the that same way. Devil's Rejects, for sure. Right. Those are our hero. Um, this one, we're just introduced to a crazy world and uh, trying to find our way out. Well, I mean, and I, 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 I'm sure you can make a good case for that. But I definitely think that Rob Zombie himself personally loves the Firefly family, right? Like, uh, he says, like, you can forgive a character of anything if he's cool. And I guess that's what I sort of bounce against is the idea that, man... Captain Spaulding is cool. I want to be like Captain Spaulding. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And in a weird way, for all their yowling and swearing and, like, offensive dialogue, uh, give me Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers, who have as much personality without yelling and screaming like that, you know? <laughs> There's a goofy uh, line of humor in the movie, but... You're always so uncomfortable that it's kind of hard to have a, you know, a comfortable, safe laugh in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's true, too. I think it's, uh, it's funny to the family. Yeah. You know, the, the things you're saying, but we're not laughing, saying, oh, that's hilarious what happened. But 
the family thinks it's it's great and it's interesting. They're having a great time. And you're right, it does hint towards he's a fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can see those parallels with the family and just the madness as it gets ratcheted up. Um, and I agree with you that he accomplished what he wanted to do. It just feels like Rob Zombie felt like just making a horror movie. Just into, These are all my ideas with um, anything I can think of that's kind of a scary idea or something freaky or something weird. I'm just going to jam it all in here. And, uh, and just make a horror movie for horror people. And, and it, he totally succeeded in that, I think. Um, i not sure what I was going to say about that. I think this is, might be where I upset you and everybody else a little bit. But I, I really like this movie. Okay. I'm a fan of A House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, and the opinion of mine is, I know everyone seems to prefer Devil's Rejects and call that you know one of his Rob Zombie's best movies. I, I disagree. I think A House of a Thousand Corpses is his best, in my opinion. Um, it's very different than the sequel. Uh, this one's more grounded. The one location, like maybe two, with the uh, the uh, Captain Spaulding's house of yeah. fried chicken and gasoline. And, um, but I just love the vibe of this movie. It's, it's different. It, it feels like what you would imagine a Rob Zombie movie would feel like. Uh, I think he did great with... Uh, it, it's, he's developed his style. This is the movie where he really made... A style of what you would expect a Rob Zombie movie to look like, to sound like. Uh, it has his voice, and as I said, the madness is something that really sticks out. Has some interesting things with the camera. Uh, he has some split screen effects. You know, framing of shots are all very purposeful. Uh, the editing is much like a Rob Zombie music video at times too. Uh, spliced in with like low grade shots of uh, characters talking to the camera. It seems at some points. Um, you know, like Otis is saying, run, rabbit, run! But it's like, it was, it's just, it's just that he's grabbing everything just to make it seem more terrifying. And it's really focused on the crazed, terrified panic of the victims in the yeah. same way that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre were. To me, it's almost like he tried to make an entire movie out of the dinner table sequence from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I know that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like one of your favorite movies of all time, period, end of sentence. Uh, and uh, yep. I, I think that might be why this works more for you than me. Again, I'm giving it a positive review. It is doing what it means to do well. It's just, uh, it's not, and this is true of a lot of his catalog of movies. It's not something that I'm super hyped about, you know, or that I'm going to commonly revisit unless I'm in a particularly, you know, trollish mood, you know? Sometimes I can be in for something nihilistic. Like, I love both versions of The Hills Have Eyes, and you know, like I say, you and I did an entire episode of torture porn movies. Like, I can get into it, but I don't know. The The aesthetic wears me down, and if it doesn't wear you down, this is going to be a good time for you, but, yeah. The screechy dialogue and just the, you know, purveyant screaming of just that tactile feeling of that the same way i felt during texas chainsaw massacre frankly that like i get what they're doing and i see how it's effective but it's not pleasant to experience fair, fair enough i guess um one thing you if you said he made the whole film about the uh the dinner scene influenced by that i kind of uh my a thing i really love in the movie is very beginning, uh, the murder ride, Captain Spaulding's murder ride. Right. I, lo I love the idea of it. It's just kind of 
there's this attraction and it's it sort of you know sets the stage for things but i like that the movie starts with these guys going on a safe simulated murder ride and at the climax of the movie uh the last survivors are kind of going through a real life murder ride it's like the whole house is the murder ride now and uh, it seems that to me the movie is almost a haunted house attraction with you don't know what's around the next corner out there and as it goes later and later in the film shit gets crazier and crazier too and you know finally dr satan at the end which, <laughs> which i think was like it's just great now we have dr satan and you know, his appearance and, and the madness continues from there um, dr satan is a strangely somehow on the nose name for me i don't know, I don't know how else to describe it <laughs> but he's Something, you know, a little bit of a backstory and just kind of hits at it. And I, for me, I wanted more of that in the yeah. sequels instead of uh, turning it into a road movie. But I guess that's that's just me. Another part of the uh, Chainsaw similarities was, you know, Otis dressing in the dead dad's skin and face, you know, wearing the skin mask and, you know, the torso as well. Um, there's definite nods there all over the place. Going back to, you know, even it takes place in the 70s and everything, but. Also interesting to note cast members, really. Dwight yeah. from The Office is in this movie. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Walton Goggins, who's come up a long ways in the, in the, is in the movie, is one of the police officers. And Chris Hardwick, uh, who was drunk off his ass, apparently, the whole time he made this movie, has gone on. He does, like, The Talking Dead and has his whole nerdist industries and everything like that. He's a successful stand-up comedian, like... Uh, but they're all just coming up when this movie was being made. Uh, also, just for the behind-the-scenes stuff, like, that he made it for a studio, and when the studio watched it, they didn't like it, they didn't want it, so he bought the rights back and then found another house to distribute. <laughs> like, it was actually made for almost two or three years, I think, before it actually got widely released, because people didn't know what they were unleashing upon the world. Like, I like that rep that it sort of comes with that way. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is weird seeing Rain Wilson in it, because it's it's an early, a younger version of him. And yeah. like, isn't this, this is Dwight from The Office now, and uh, Chris Hardwick I didn't know before. Um, and you mentioned talking to that, that's kind of where I knew him from. And so I didn't know who he was when I first watched him. He was just a random person. And now looking back on it, I said, that's that guy. And now it's all kind of piecing together. Um, speaking of the cast, here's where we might even have people turn off the podcast now. But uh, <laughs> Sherry Moon in this movie, everyone you know, rags on her a lot. But for whatever reason, I really like her in this film. And I know people are kind of hard on her, and I, I, I can see her portrayal of Baby Firefly being kind of grating on people with that high-pitched laugh and her and her squeal, her squeaky voice. But for some reason, I really like the character she did in this one. She seems kind of quirky, you know, she's attractive and flirty, and she's also fun and dangerous at the same time. And then the wackiness comes out, and she's really dangerous. There's just something off-putting about you know, both sides would be played at the same time. She is shrill, I would say, but I would say yeah. she is shrill on purpose. Yeah, and uh, for some reason I, I enjoy her more in this one than the sequels as well. Maybe it's because the other ones, they seem to get a little bit more mean-spirited from Go, uh, whereas this is just, it's a haunted thrill ride, I guess. Yeah. The House of a Thousand Corpses, really, but... It's, it's, it's like the name of an attraction you would see at the, at the midway. 
Yeah. Uh, Enter the House of a Thousand Corpses, and that to me is the whole theme of the movie. The other one we got mentioned, you mentioned Captain Spaulding, of course, Sid Haig, yeah. and what a character that is. And uh, that the opening scene before the credits, you mentioned Tarantino. That's a totally Tarantino feeling yeah. scene, you know, with, with the guns and the robbery. But it, it kind of it's attention grabbing. I'll give him that much, and then you go into the credits. But I, I really do enjoy it. Not sure if it has anything to do with the movie itself, but it's enough to sit you down in your seat and say, okay, I'll pay attention. I don't know what's going to happen next. We're in a gas station. There's a clown. What the hell? <laughs> but he, it's, it, it is right down to the T. You know, it's got that shit kicker sort of like southern, but it feels really crafted. It feels like wannabe Tarantino. Like people don't talk like this. But it kind of also works because this whole movie is in its own universe. Like, this is not the real world. Like, um, these people are so obviously crazy. Their way, their madness is, like, not hidden at all. Like, and the amount of corpses that they're, like, how have they not been discovered exactly? Like, who, like, how incompetent is the local law enforcement? Like, maybe it's the crazy clown that's doing it. <laughs> yeah, he might be a good suspect, but uh, the, <laughs> yeah, and I agree with that. The, the language, the um, dialogue—it's it's not the way people speak. Tarantino, same thing. It's it's the way people speak in Tarantino movies. It's the way people speak in. It's like, okay, I'm watching a movie. I'm not watching a documentary. This isn't going to make me feel really uh, bad about anybody because I know this is a this is a movie. This is not based on a true story. But no. account. Um, and of course the. The centerpiece to the film, I think, is uh, legendary Bill Mosley uh, playing Otis. Uh, I think he's the one that, that pulls it all together. Yeah. He's, I think, like, people talk shit about Sherry Moon, but I think part of it is uh, she's sharing the screen with people who have been at it for a lot longer than she has, right? I don't, yeah. I've never really thought that she sucked. I do think it's interesting that you don't never see her in anything that's not Rob Zombie. But, um, nor have I ever been knocked over by her, will I say, but I'm not of the mood, of the mood, like, she's, she's awful, but I am of the opinion that Bill Mosley is consistently good, even in bad movies, if he's in it, usually at least he's making an effort, like, (laughs) and and let me backtrack a bit here, I don't want to oversell that I think, uh, Sherry Moon is the greatest actress in the world or nothing, uh, exactly how you said, she's surrounded by veteran actors in this film, yeah. people that have done this, and they know what they're doing, and uh, maybe I was just coming to bat saying, uh, you know, <laughs> in a very nice way saying, she's not that bad, but uh, yeah, why isn't she in anyone else's movie, does she not want to, is this just what she does for, for hubby, I don't know, um, but I think, uh, for the most part, I think she kind of held her own there, but uh, yeah, Bill Mosley, I'll watch, if, if I get relaxed a little bit because he's in a lot of stuff too. Yeah. Low budget things, higher budget, and uh, I'll give something a chance if I see his name attached. Oh, in this, at least. He brings something to the table for sure. Yeah. And yeah. Sid Haig, as much as a lot of the kids these days know him from these movies, has been making genre movies for like 50 years, right? Like. Yeah, it's funny. He's been doing that so long, and now he's always going to be that, that foul mouth clown. <laughs> 
Uh, it is memorably grim and bleak, and it is completely what it advertises itself to be. So, if this looks like a meal you will enjoy, I will back your play. Like, it's successful, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, in my, I, I finished where I start. It's a very specific meal for a very specific audience, and, and Scott's in that audience. And on the right day, so am I. <laughs> I, I've kind of, I kind of forgot how much I do enjoy it. Uh, once it was on and I just relaxed into it, I was like, I really am enjoying this. I, I forgot how much I actually, and there's so many weird scenes that seem just kind of thrown in as well that, um, I used one, for example, the Red Hot Pussy Liquors, uh, oh, God. the liquor store. Um, I'm not sure if that was just an excuse to have a Rob Zombie song in the soundtrack called, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's... But it's just a, a weird, another scene where people don't talk like that. There's no store like this. Um, but it just adds to creating this weird world, you know, and victims wearing, being dressed in bunny suits at the end. Yeah. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's, it's just weird. It is weird, and that helps the med, like, that's sort of the sugar that helps the medicine go down a little bit. But I think, uh, again, from my end of the table, I, I prefer the cat and mouse, the chase, the, like suspense and this movie really focuses on the fear and the suffering of the victims like here's your dad's dead face that i'm wearing and i'm yelling at you who's your daddy or the impossible weird game show of run rabbit run and who is this game show being performed for and you know why <laughs> like uh yeah i mean the cat and mouse chase was over about and at that point it's you know they've already killed all the police everyone's dead now except you know i think two people were left and so then we're just gonna have the last half of the movie is just gonna be suffering yeah which is not everybody's favorite thing to watch but if you're sitting down to watch a movie called house of a thousand corpses (laughs) what did you want it to be The world froze a long time ago. So long ago that I can't remember the warmth of the sun. I heard the stories growing up. How the planet grew hotter as our fuel was burned. How we made towers to work the weather. When the food ran out, the lucky ones found places like this. A place where life could exist underneath the ice. But the truth is, one day, it started to snow. Stopped. Colony 5, this is Colony 7. Over. What's up? SOS loop from Colony 5. SOS? If anyone out there can hear this, I repeat our location, our location. A few hours ago, we received a distress signal from Colony 5. I think they're worth checking up on. We need to take care of our own bricks. They just put the whole colony at risk. That's really not your decision to make, is it? We're sending a team and I'm leading it. Watch your step. What happened here? Not so much of a welcoming committee. We're from Colony 7. Came to help. Are they gone? Who? Is anyone else alive? Define their life. Colony. Um, this is an American-produced and Canadian-made post-apocalyptic thriller. 
a new ice age has arrived and surviving humans live in small pockets underground and try to keep in touch with each other and they're losing touch with more and more of the colonies and we're trying to figure out what happens and what with this episode being called them folks ain't right we encounter a colony that has gone I, I think a little bit step beyond feral, we could say. Uh, <laughs> so I um, so they uh, quite smartly used uh, a standard Canadian winter to back as a you know new ice age. <laughs> yeah, it just looked like regular Winnipeg, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. This is <laughs> Thursday to me. What are you guys all bitching about? But uh, they have these two great sci-fi sort of draw actors. You've got, you know, Morpheus, <laughs> uh, Lawrence Fishburne, and then you got Bill Paxton, he of Terminator, Predator 2, and Aliens, you know. So um, they're obviously sort of planting a flag in the ground for the sort of sci-fi audience, the sort of genre audience. And I think it's one of these movies that's trying to give you a lot, but that, if I'm honest, is actually kind of built of other movies. Even though I hadn't seen this movie before as I was watching it, it just continually had this feeling of, like, I've seen this before, haven't I? I I've certainly seen the heroic leader who will sacrifice himself for the good of the colony, and I've certainly seen the problematic Cooper character who makes, you know, an ass of the, himself and further complicates things for no other reason than to, you know, supply conflict in the plot. And I've certainly seen journeys across post-apocalyptic landscapes. So, I don't know. I, I, I don't dislike the movie but I just find it hard to get passionate about like I find it hard to pick out really exciting plot points to hit like it's it's fine and in a way that's like the biggest insult that you can slap a movie with like in a way if it was more memorably like weird like House of a Thousand Corpses or if it had its own sort of strong identity in a weird way uh, I would be able to get more excited about it but what is the movie's goal, and is it successful? I think for the most part, yeah, uh, it's just very familiar. That's where I start with the colony. Now, were you hinting that, was this the first time you had viewed it? No, this was the second time, but the, okay. the first time I had watched it, that was sort of my experience, and I didn't yeah. change my mind upon watching it again. See, my mind got changed, this was the second time I've watched it. And my, my, my opinion did change a little bit, quite a bit, actually, the second time. Um, interesting enough, I found I enjoyed it more the first time. And I think when I watched it the first time, it was a blind view. I knew nothing about it. Um, I knew there was uh, just the cover of the DVD. It had uh, you know, a face on it with teeth. And it saw the cast listed, looked wintry, looked interesting, put it in. I didn't know what I was getting into. And... Uh, there's no way I could have known where it was going. It looked like it was a winter apocalypse kind of survival movie for a while. And, uh, and it was and, until it became something else. And, and uh, I did not see that coming because I didn't read the back even. I just watched the movie. Uh, so it was kind of like, uh, it's not even close to the, the quality of a, a movie called The Descent. No. But uh, in, in that movie, 
these characters are in a bad situation and it's scary before it even becomes a horror movie is what I always like to say. This is uh, similar in the fact that they're in this winter area, which is already, we're trying to survive this end of the world winter scenario. And now all of a sudden there's, there's monsters or there's you know, people attacking them. And um, I didn't realize it was going to go that way. So for the last 50 minutes, it becomes a full-blown horror movie and uh, kind of flips it that way. And I, I really enjoyed the surprise of that the first time because I didn't have time to really think about anything. It was just uh, these characters didn't know what was happening. So how would I know what's happening? It's They just have to get away. They have to survive. Uh, so I really liked it. But the second time, I was aware of this coming. So I was uh, questioning it more and, uh, and wondering, okay, like, I was caught up in the surprise of it the first time, but now I'm just the plot holes are, are becoming more apparent. I'm wondering, what are these people? Uh, at first, first viewing, I was one. I thought they maybe were a breed of vampire or something because they did move kind of differently. They have sharp teeth, um, and they have this weird agil- agility to them—the way they're jumping and, and kind of crawling around. Uh, but they don't have any other vampire traits or qualities, so. Maybe there's a group of cannibals that have uh, survived because of their vicious ways and sharpened their own teeth. Uh, I'm not sure because they do kind of roar a bit too. So I, I was kind of stuck on that a bit, wondering what are, what are these people? Are they just survivors that have been this way or is there something else going on? Um, how did they track this guy over the blown up bridge? Um, there's, there's something something missing. Well, and the fact that like as viewers we question this, are they just feral cannibals or have they become zombie vampires and the, that we don't know and they don't know and that that question's never asked or answered is a strange weakness of the movie. The premise where we start this sort of post-apocalyptic brutal survival story and then it becomes this journey and then it turns into a zombie movie or a horror movie or whatever. I like that as sort of like an idea for a movie. It, it kind of reminds me, you mentioned The Descent. The director of The Descent made this movie called Doomsday. And I feel very similar about Doomsday as I do about The Colony in that it's well made, it's well acted, it's completely solidly executed, but every single scene I'm like, oh, that's the rescue sequence from Aliens. Oh, and that's that claustrophobic sequence from, you know, the other. this is uh, the homage to the thing moment, and that's Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but... Uh, I, I, and I don't mind tipping your hat to your influences or what you're coming from, but at some point you need to show up with your own sort of bill of goods, your own <laughs> identity, your own story to, to tell. And <clears throat> this is fine. Like, this is a totally saleable product. It's not terrible. It's not softly, but it, it almost seems cynical in that, like, we'll put these ingredients together. We have a new ice age. We have zombies, and we have Lawrence Fishburne, and we have Bill Paxton. We can sell this. Yeah. And I think it would have been good enough to just be a winter apocalypse. Just one day it started snowing, and it never stopped. That, that's good enough. But we didn't, I don't think, need it. And we didn't need the other the weather control stations. Or, or kind of what really threw me off was what I thought was a hokey kind of ending. Um where they found apparently a weather station where there's been thaw and this is going to be their salvation and they've luckily have some tomato seeds that they can bring there now and now everything's going to be okay and uh, i just seemed was that just so they could have an ending with some some kind of hope right everything's going to be good now because how 
how far do these remaining survivors have to walk to this this colony where they sort of have a slight idea where it might be and how, how's that gonna how, how far is that walk gonna be how's it but they got tomato seeds so, yeah. so they're gonna be okay <laughs> just, and the ending just felt kind of rushed and, and moving on to this I, I think we could have done without all of that well, and maybe even a little, not that I want all of these movies to have completely dour endings, because we have no shortage of that, but, like, it didn't seem in keeping with everything that came before it. Like, I, I, it, in my idea, like, their struggle to exist continues. Not everybody necessarily had to get killed, but, like, they didn't have to put a postage stamp slap happy ending-ish on the, on the end of it, because it didn't necessarily, you know ring true and it's interesting how this question that we're having are they zombies are they uh you know um people are they what it's a question that i found myself asking again and again in this list of movies <laughs> this is not the first time this question's gonna come up like yeah, what like, exactly what are we dealing with here <laughs> yeah i didn't even think of it the first time in my head there was no time to as I saw coming, I was like, wait, these aren't vampires. Wait, why aren't they speaking? Or is something going on? They're all... But there are other subplots, I felt, that uh, went nowhere. Uh, Bill Paxton's character, boy, that he's this executioner, he's not supposed to be, but he kind of does things his own way. Here <laughs> because there's a deadly flu virus. You know? And uh, we got to quarantine the sick. And uh, if he tests positive for this flu... You have to quarantine or else maybe I'll shoot you or you got to go for a long walk. But it really leads to nothing in the end. This was not necessary because it, it didn't play out. Anything about this whole flu, uh, the testing them, Maxon's character, really. Uh, unless it was just to lull us so that when the action happened, it was going to come more out of left field. We're just thinking it's a flu. really meant nothing. No. It was to give Bill Paxton something to do, I think. Uh, yeah. it does feature Julian Richings, he of everything Canadian. <laughs> yes, and he's always cast in, uh, he looks like exactly who he was cast at, that last survivor that's starving, and it's kind of gone mad. But I have to shout out Bucky Hate whenever I see him, I do love me some Julian Richings. Um, and but I do the same thing. Kevin Zeigers, who's sort of the male lead of this movie, has kind of quietly got an impressive horror resume. He was in the Dawn of the Dead remake. He was in the the Adam Green movie Frozen, not the Disney Frozen, but the the ski the, the chairlift Frozen, and of course the terrifying Air Bud. So, but uh, everybody loves Air Bud. I like Air Bud too. I don't know. It, it feel like I'm doing short shift on the colony, but like I run out of things to say about it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I feel there's not a lot to say. It's there's uh, there's three parts to it. There's the part in the colony when everyone's getting sick, and then there's the the walk through the snow, and then there's the, uh, the battle at the end. There's there strong a, isolated moments. There's a good like hack through the jaw kill sequence. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but again, I think you're right. I, I, we can think and surmise more interesting movies. What if the flu was the obstacle or what if they 
lose contact with the other colony, and when they go to rescue the other colony, the, it, it's been a lure. They officially are no longer working together anymore. The worm has turned, and each group is now at war with the other. <laughs> like, there was a lot of cool, interesting sci-fi ways to take this. Yeah, I think, I think there were more ideas that they could have thrown in. You're right. Good enough? Same page. Boring. episodes now that just strictly dealt with like horror movies or, or dramas that deal with cults and I, I really find it kind of fascinating how it seems to be a tricky thing to tackle in a way that you know as uh, an audience can either take it seriously or they can go like <laughs> horror slasher right um, jackals is definitely gonna go horror slasher and uh, it's sort of a standards premise in that a family has kidnapped their son who's been indoctrinated into this cult and are trying to break him from it. They have this cult, uh, I can't remember what they call these people, but they basically deprogram people who have been brainwashed by cults, but it usually takes several days or even weeks because it's taken months or years for the cult to sink their claws in them. This is a brutal really dark like 85 minute movie about the destruction of a family and I feel like some essential pieces are missing like I feel like if we knew these characters a little bit more before all of the shit hits the fan we would be a little bit more affected by it if we understood how and why this kid fell under the spell of this ridiculous frankly ridiculous cult like i don't know what the draw of this cult could possibly be and there's hints of tension in the family but nothing in the way of the kind of abuse or something that he would need to run from or escape and i do find giving the tough situation that they're handed with they're in this remote cabin cabin the phone line's been cut and they're being surrounded by who knows how many cultists that seem very willing to do harm like, their decision-making is really frustrating at times. And I feel like if I knew the characters a little bit more, and this made a little bit more sense to me, if I knew why they're gonna, they will go all the way to, to stay with this kid, no matter what terrible thing he does or says, if I, I feel like something essential was missing to make me feel more. Because when the quote-unquote devastating ending did come, it felt more inevitable to me than anything else like i found myself asking what was the movie actually about 
saw it kind of differently. I never even thought of that as far as I want to know more about or the cult itself. Because I don't think there's nothing they could have shown where we would understand how these cults work and, and the brainwashing that's involved and, and say, oh yeah, that seems like a cool cult. I'd join it. Yeah. yeah. Like, there is no answer to that well question. Show whatever's happened, this kid, you know, he looks like he came from a well-to-do good family and this happens sometimes where a kid just gets involved with something and, uh, and you don't know, like, what did I do wrong as a parent? But uh, you just something grabs onto him and they pull him away and, and he's too far gone uh i did i, I did have one i guess i was only really frustrated with them at one point um I, I i think there was a point i would have given him up as as the father when he realized after he bit off you know a chunk of his mom's hair yeah and the cult just wants him back um i think i might have said this isn't working he's too far gone but again as a parent i mean that's your, your kid, but at the same time, you're choosing to keep that one and you're losing everybody else in your family one by one is getting taken. Steven Dorff plays the cult programmer and he's, spoilers, the first person to get sort of the hack and slash from the cult. But once that happens, there's no real reason for them to not kill everybody on the premises, right? Like... Yeah, and... Um, and maybe there's more frustrating decisions because he's the one guy that's maybe best equipped to deal with this, right? yeah. maybe protect them. He's got some background. Uh, now it's just the family, and it's it's a dad, a mom, girlfriend, and a brother um, doing the best they can, and they don't know. They weren't expecting this to happen, so uh, they don't have uh, have that guy to protect them anymore. And I'm also, also a bit of a sucker for uh, home invasion-style horror movies, yeah. which uh, this is, you know, it's a cult movie, but it's also... It's, Basically, mostly it's a it's a home invasion style. Get that secluded house. Your house is surrounded, and I just find that if they're done well, they can be effective and kind of unnerving for me. I mean, it's your your home is supposed to be your safe space, and when it's compromised and someone just there's a group of people that want in, it's uh, it can be kind of scary when there's these bad guys out there and they're just waiting. I, I do, uh, and I like the idea, the cult idea. You know, this family trying to help him. Um, the brainwashing that this cult has done to this kid is more convincing than uh, some brainwashing that's done in another movie, which we're going to speak about later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if we're going to talk about Perkins 14. But yeah, cults, cults do happen, and these kids get lost to it. And uh, this was a tough one. I found this was the movie I found was uh, this was my first time watching it, actually. Yeah, it was uh, it was sort of heartbreaking, and uh, you know, if the family's trying to get through to this kid, and he continues to tell them repeatedly how violently they're going to die, and that he's going to bathe in their blood, and and it's he doesn't it's, care it's, that they're going to die. He doesn't yeah, have any attachment. And at thirty, about half hour in, you're when the uh, that first death happens. Um, Yeah, I, it reminds me, even stylistically, with the weird masks that they're wearing, of the movie The Strangers, yeah. which I, I really like that. <clears throat> and I feel like if it was a Strangers with the cult, if that's really what they managed to pull off, that I would be a lot more behind the movie. 
it's one of these things, and I'm going to talk about it again in another review, where all of the pieces are here for me to make a really strong horror movie, and yet I don't know that for me it completely closes the deal. Sounds like they came closer to the mark for you, right? It's the, it's the one that left me in a, a, a weird place at the end. Uh, we kind of talked about that at the beginning of the, the podcast, but if we speak about the end, um, the kid, Justin, he appears to have that breakthrough after he, you know, his mom's been captured. His dad's out there fighting for his life, and uh, you know his end is coming. And and he seems to have that breakthrough with his girlfriend. So just let me go. Don't let my whole family die. And, uh, and she releases him. He stops at the baby before he leaves. There's a baby involved in all this as well, which yeah. you know, raises the stakes as well. You just want to protect this baby. And, you know, I was wondering, what's he going to do to the baby? No, 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 don't say he's not going to. But, you know, he touches the baby, strokes it, and that's it. And he kisses the girlfriend, and he goes out there. And uh, and I was feeling something. I was like, okay, good, like, let's, let's get this girl out. Let's save the baby. And, um, you know, and it felt sad when the father died. Repeatedly stabbed there, and uh, and then the mother's neck gets sliced, and it, but it's it just felt also avoidable, and uh, you know because the reason everybody died is because they loved their son, yeah, and tried to help him. If they didn't give a shit about their son, none of this would have happened, probably. <laughs> they do have that opening scene with somebody else coming home in the cult and killing his family. So who knows? Maybe maybe that was the end that this would have happened. They had to save him, but uh, it just felt like damn. If only this. Mom and dad didn't love their sons so much. Yeah, I wanted to be as invested in the kid as the family was, and I never did. From the second I saw his crazy face, I was like, yeah, this guy is, this guy is not reachable. <laughs> of course, we're not going to love this kid as much as uh, the people that gave birth to him would. Yeah. And I was like you, at, at a certain point, I was, uh, bye Justin, gotta go. Yeah. Everyone else is in trouble here. Tell your friends to just fuck off. Yeah, but, <laughs> but after no. a certain point, the cult wasn't going to let anyone live either, right? <clears throat> no, and then even after, you know, after everything, Justin, he just wanted to be back with his new family in the cult. Yeah. And, you know, even he goes down and he's crying. He's just so happy to be back with them. And, and of course, that final shot, we don't even get girlfriend and the baby off to safety she's on the road a car is coming and you see that shot of a person right behind her yeah and then credits and then right there i just like i was in a i just felt dark for a little while i was all alone and and uh and I'm, so she's not doing so good either and that baby's gone and um yeah it was uh it was a really hard ending i found and again i'm not against horror movies that have bleak endings but I prefer ones that sort of leave my head scratching. And I don't want to, like, list off a bunch of them, because then I guess I'm just dropping spoilers for a bunch of unrelated <laughs> movies. But, like, uh, I don't know. It felt inevitable instead of earned to me. I don't know how else to pro properly articulate it. And I also, I mean, I've watched 12 other cult horror movies on the similar subject, which I, I would argue probably tackle the subject more seriously and more head-on in a way that this movie is not as interested in that. I think this movie is interested in the strangers aspect, the home invasion aspect. Uh, that's what it's much better about being. And I think that there's such a great psychological bedrock 
that uh, I think that it, we could have felt more. I think Deborah Kara Unger, who plays the mother, is a really good actress, and they didn't really give her much to do other than, you know, panic, panic, panic. Um, I guess you're real good. Yeah. Um, and there was just a certain point in the movie where, I think it was when the uh, younger brother was getting his hands lit on fire. <laughs> by the cultists where they're hanging him from a swing set and, and torturing him in front of the rest of the family where I was like, this is just not going to end well. There's just, this is just not going to end well. And, uh, that I, for some reason, that sort of decision in my mind kind of unplugged me emotionally. I wasn't happy about the way the movie ended, but I would be lying if I said I was emotionally devastated by it. <laughs> Consistent, like yeah, his... and just that unknown. I guess it just gnawed at me, and I was just wondering about it. I thought about it way too much because it's it's an eighty-five minute movie that you don't have to think about. Just watch it. And for some reason, I was in the mood to, to I don't know, take it too too far, maybe. Well, and I would say that if you want to watch a sinister home invasion movie, then maybe Jackals will be the mood meal for you. But if, uh, if you want to watch a cult movie, I think there's better options. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you want to say about Jackals? I feel like I've been kind of hard on it, but I don't know what else to say. Not a bad person. You're just no. crazy. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want to hand over my kid to the cult. I guess no matter what terrible thing he said, I I understand the conflict within the house. I just, yeah, I I wanted more. Places where evil lives. There are visions that can't be explained. And there are nightmares that have no end.
Waiting is from director Andrew Van Den Houten. I'm not sure what else he's done, but it's based off of uh, Jack Ketchum novel, and Jack Ketchum wrote the screenplay. It's about um, a feral family or clan, really, because they've been in the woods of Maine for generations, and they feed on people, and they kidnap kids, and they do terrible, terrible things. At the beginning of this episode, I was talking about how, like, just the amount of terrible fates and ugliness and stuff that we were viewing this episode kind of got to me. And I think Offspring was the tipping point. Like, if there was the wrong movie for me to watch on the wrong day, I don't know. Something happened. Something broke in me while I was watching Offspring this time. Watching these little feral children put aluminum teeth in their mouths. <laughs> like, uh, this movie has, like, cannibalism, rape, child death, like, everything's on the fucking table. Like, and again, like I was talking previously in the, uh, Jackals, what would it be like to be a feral family in the modern world? Like, I know they have their own babble language that we're not sort of privy to. They have their own sort of way of business and doing things. And we kind of sort of, in quotes, get to know the personalities in a very limited way of some of them. But that's not what the movie's about. For me, like, the movie is very much about the aforementioned cannibalism, rape, murder, child death. Like, it's very focused on giving you that. And Polly McIntosh, who a lot of people will know from The Walking Dead, uh, plays the woman. She did it again in the sequel. And I think she commits to it in a very sort of brave way. Like, she's really putting it out there. And, like, the, the script is asking an awful lot of her, and she is game to do it. But it really doesn't feel like it's about anything. And it just is so relentlessly, bleakly appallingly, awfully, disgustingly violent that I was starting to question a lot of my choices <laughs> as I was like, watching what, it. What and the weird what thing is, doing? like, I'd seen it before, and I remember not being a big fan, but I don't remember being, like, profoundly hurt by the movie or, like, making me, like, question things. <laughs> but I have to say, I mean, I guess... I will compliment it in that the movie must be effective on some level, as it had definitely found a nerve in me and pushed it. But, man, did I not enjoy watching it this time at all. I, I had a funny feeling that you would uh, be there. Um, it's very, you're right, it's very unpleasant. It's, uh, it's savage and gory and so, so, so much bad stuff is happening and kids are involved too and you know, that changes it a bit as well, like young kids. And um, there was a time, um, and I think I discussed it with you, I, I was watching it thinking, wondering if there was a prequel to this, because somehow it feels like a sequel. There's that old grizzled ex-cop who knows about the history of these offspring, but it's all, the background's all glossed over fairly quick in some newspaper articles during the credits. And then he mentions a little bit of, it, but then we just move on. So there's there's backstory here that that we don't know about. I mean, I just said there's no prequel, but it just seemed like we're plunked in, and uh, some people know about this this family, but uh, they've been around before, and uh, now they're back. I I didn't uh, I didn't hate it, Larry. <laughs> Every now and then it 
about you on the wrong day every now and then. I just like the savage coriness. And uh, it didn't bother me that much. But it, you're, I don't know why it didn't. It is it's, it deals with a lot of terrible things. Um, yeah, there's there's some, some rape involved. And, and, uh, and I guess even one of the rape, there's, there's just so much going on in here. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I guess uh, the very start was the uh, first thing I wrote down here, actually, is a, just a note. The theme music, the soundtrack reminded me a lot of the original Hills Have Eyes, sounds of it, and uh, and that kind of put me in that frame of mind. And it's not too far off from that style as well, with the you know that that type of family where they just will do anything and, and just attack a whole household. Well, it is the Hills Have Eyes, except for I liked, like I said, I I, I got behind the idea of this family that came into the territory of another family and the war of the two families and even though it was explicitly violent and even though there was rape in it i was so invested with the characters you don't get enough time to invest with any characters because they're already dead by the time you like know their name like the movie opens with an assault on a car that's just absolutely brutal and look it's completely true to the, the like the evil source material <laughs> and it's the second of a series of i think four or five books so you're absolutely right and that there's pre-story that we don't know but again questions why are they stealing kids do they understand that they have to you know keep the gene pool deep do they have that much understanding and yet they're still feral cannibals or like, why don't they produce their own children? Um, no questions asked or answered as far as that's concerned. Um, how have they managed to keep this a secret for literally generations? Yeah, I think they, they ask that and they just keep, just keep moving. Yeah. And, um, but what, the brutality of this film is the main thing you're going to remember from it after watching just, wow, that was really brutal. There's some very disturbing shit going on inside that cave where the offspring are, are living. And there's, I'm not even sure what the proper term is to call it now, but there's a man inside that cave that doesn't speak. He's kind of giggling all the time. You know, is he, he's handicapped in some, some ways, not all there. Was he someone that was with him all the time or did they kidnap him and he's just been brought up this way? And he's moaning and laughing and seemingly only used for his penis. Yeah. Yeah, so um, he's just laying there giggling, and every now and then they'll, they'll grab his penis and, and rape him, and uh, maybe that's how they keep their family going, I'm not sure. But they also um, seem to steal the kids, yeah. The kids don't seem yeah. to be food, it's the more of the adults. I don't know, I felt like there was, again, it's another one of these movies where I feel like essential pieces were missing, but the, the focus, again, because Jack Ketchum... He did this book called The Girl Next Door. I guess it was based on a real case of this teenage girl that was supposed to be being taken care of by this lady, and she basically tortured her and invited neighborhood kids to come in and torture her. And he wrote a whole novel based off of that. And again, it's it's this, right? Sexual torment, humiliation, you know, everything except for the cannibalism. And it, I don't know, Jack Ketchum has a good reputation in the horror community that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I haven't read The Offspring, but I sense that same mentality here in that, uh, you know, and again, I, I don't want to sound overly judgmental because I can watch The Hills Have Eyes and enjoy it. I think you can make this kind of movie work and be entertaining and even have all the teeth and tissue, but... 
I think a balance needs to be struck somewhere. I think you need to at least try to be about something more than the awful, awful, awfulness. I, I also haven't read the book, but uh, I don't imagine it would take long. It, it couldn't be more than 11 pages, I'm thinking, <laughs> just to tell this story. Um, it's Of the six movies we're talking about today, this is perhaps the one least for those with weak stomachs. Yeah. I mean, A Thousand Corpses has a lot of gruesome images, but this one goes so over the top. I mean, they're biting out a woman's vagina for fuck's sake. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're biting that and then spitting that out. Uh, they go everywhere. And uh, and it's it's all over the place. Um, yeah, it's... it's what, one what-the-fuck moment of this film is uh, a scene that's completely out of this movie. Uh, the, the ex-husband or whoever it is that comes to visit... Uh, picks up a hitchhiker on the way that that is a weird out of place five minute scene of, of this guy picking up a hitchhiker and you know coming on to her and just being a, a, a douchebag basically but when we want to establish this guy's a prick which is very well established through the movie uh, but do we need a five minute scene of him talking to this hitchhiker trying to grab her boob and then uh, five minutes five minutes of this and then he kicks her out of the car and we never see her again or it's padding she goes, walks in. yeah she goes into a different movie and i thought i'm sure this scene was just to bring it to feature length because it's, uh, without it it's 70 minutes it's barely feature length and yeah they're struggling to keep it like and that's yeah, what i say there's the ask a few questions have a few characters talk to each other you know you know about the plot <laughs> Yeah, we already established, it wasn't needed, it, like, if you were trimming the fat, you would definitely cut that scene, but, yeah, like, because we already addicted. didn't like that guy, we didn't need to have it reinforced, and that woman wasn't going to have a card to play later on in the movie, so, snippety snippety, but, uh, uh, again, I've done a lot of stage presentations, especially if you're doing an improv show or whatever, you got to keep one eye on the clock and sometimes you're running overtime and sometimes you're running under time. But if you need to stretch out things, you vamp for a while. And unless you're really good at it, the audience can tell. And if you're clocking this scene, doesn't need to be here. The movie's vamping and the movie's an hour and 19 minutes long. And it's about cannibal families. Cannibal, like children. Yeah. I, uh, speaking of the children, I, I, I like to watch the old retro reviews from Siskel and Ebert on YouTube sometimes, and they were reviewing the Macaulay Culkin classic, The Good Son, and they were just so angry at the violence and that it would involve children and that, like, people are gonna, you know, be so upset and, like, they were just screaming moral panic over it. And I can't imagine what Roger and Gene Siskel would make of this movie. Like, Gene Siskel's head would pop like a balloon. <laughs> and Offspring says, here, hold my beer. Watch yeah. this. I wanted to mention the little boy in this movie. Uh, what is his name? Luke. That's the character. Um, he's one of the surviving good people at the end. And oh my goodness, this kid. Is he even trying? 
I, I mean, it may, I don't want to be hard on child actors, but it's funny because he's the one character that's not even a little bit scared during all of this. Um, he really keeps his shit together. He's in total control. At the end, the other two ladies are catatonic, and he's okay, and he's you know, talking to the police and helping them out. And uh, I just think it's funny. They're jumping out the window to get away, and he's like, all right, yeah, I guess we'll jump out the window. Okay, yeah. I'm here next, and everyone else is freaking out, and I'm not sure if they just, I don't know, <laughs> it's just one of those child actor things where it's like, what the hell's with this kid? Oh, and like the weird Home Alone <laughs> traps, and like, I don't know, the, the tree house and everything like that. <laughs> yeah. And all I will say at the, I mean, last thing I want to point out is the end. The very, very end, after all the nastiness is done, the camera pans through the cave to show, well, first of all, there's a breastfeeding scene, which is really odd. And, uh, you know, she's screaming while she's breastfeeding this kid for maybe, maybe an overreaction, I don't know. But then she throws the baby. We've got, we have that happening, throwing of a baby. So anyways, this baby, the camera pans through the cave. Everybody's dead in there, except this baby is alive. And that's the last thing we see. And is that supposed to make us feel better that there's still an alive baby in the cave that's going to probably lay there and suffer and starve to death? And some <laughs> terrible time later, the child died? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like four days later, this baby cried itself to death. <laughs> Again, completely in keeping with the bleakness of the entire movie, though. And as yeah. the mother hobbles away into the woods with the kid, like, are we? did she learn anything? Did we learn anything? Did they play who is the true monster? I know a lot of the people that were attacked were terrible people, but, like, terrible enough to be worthy of being food for cannibals, like... And the little boy will just be saying, wow, what a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to go back to his... To his video games and not think about it ever again. He's just completely stoic about everything. That's, that's exactly how I took it. <laughs> can we go watch? Can we go play Xbox? Yeah, hold on a second. We gotta. I don't know. Maybe if the movie was a little bit less grotesque, I could have got a kick out of that. But I was just, again, like I'd seen it before, but I either blocked it out or like, like. I knew that the woman was hard, but, like, Lucky McGee tries to put a feminist angle on things, and, like, uh, it felt like it was about something other than this woman being tortured, even though a lot of the movie is this woman being tortured. This is, the offspring is woman without a heart or a brain, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, know what you're getting into. It's Fair not enough. date movie night. No, it is not a date movie at all. And if it is, this is going to be a weird day. <laughs> So, you know what's 
almost worse to me than like an out and out bad movie or like a disappointing movie. It's a movie that is so close to being good that you can like see the good movie that's there, but it's just not quite letting you have it. I think the Jackal movie that we talked about was a little bit that for me, but this movie, Perkins 14, is a lot that for me. Yeah. It's weird because, again, it's got so much working against it. It's a micro-budget movie, and uh, it was sort of, in a weird way, written by committee. Like, they had certain plot points with their investors or whatever, and, like, they would basically have this choose-your-own-adventure storyboard plot process that the financiers would help decide. And it would put them in a just puzzling place, especially from a writing standpoint. Like, if it's kind of hard to map things out if you don't know exactly where the movie is going to end. Like, you can't set things up and pay things off in the same way, you know, unless it happens completely organically. But the core idea of this community that has a lot of their children disappear and then 10 years later have them reappear as villains, as monsters, as zombies, as whatever the fuck they are, because it's not explained, could be interesting. Anchoring a movie about this father who's been missing his son and his life has been destroyed by the by the, the hole that's been punched in it by the, the disappearance of his son is... That kind of character is something that we, uh, people can really identify or, or sympathize with. Richard Brake, who's been showing up in more and more horror movies, a lot of Rob Zombie movies, coincidentally, can really bring an intimidating sort of vibe and performance to his roles, and has done so in the past, even in a Tremors movie. And <laughs> um, Creepy little kids, kind of zombie, kind of brainwash kind of culty but no answers solid performances solid moments good ideas but kind of a mess that's where i start on perkins 14 am i out of my mind i'm with you 100 percent i i found it kind of boring honestly for for part of it and uh i just found it hard to get into at least for for the first half. Uh, and the thing is, I could picture people being more into the first half because maybe that's the more interesting bit. Um, maybe they got disappointed when it eventually turns into a run-of-the-mill zombie-type movie. Uh, but I, I just wasn't feeling it the first half. Um, the acting was not great, uh, I didn't find. Um, I don't know, it, it, was it me or did When the whole cop trying to figure out who Perkins really was, he kind of found that out fairly easily and fairly quickly, he put the clues together in about two minutes of talking to this guy that he abducted his son based on something happening to his finger and he had the same shoe size. I think those were the two clues where he said, oh, well, that's the guy who took my son 10 years ago. So, well, that and that Perkins is wearing his crazy on his face, like he's acting super sketch yeah. and like all but taunting the guy. Sketch. Yeah, he was really sus. Like yes, that indeed. Sus, yeah. But I don't know. The kids still say sus. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It, it seemed like you know when they're playing off each other. It's like, are they trying to? This is not. Um, this isn't Silence of the Lambs. 
the conversations. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I just I couldn't get into that part. And this was the first movie of the six where it felt like I was like, I feel like I'm not liking this. And it just wasn't speaking to me. Um, and then you know, once it got going, it, it had moments of some excitement. Uh, but again, I don't know if that made any sense. So we've seen we've seen another kid in Jackals get brainwashed, brainwashed to love the cult, the cult is his family, all hail the cult, or whatever. Yeah. But apparently he kidnapped these kids and brainwashed them, kept them away from people, and that brainwashing turned them into zombies. Apparently. And then they were indestructible for some reason? Yeah, yeah, because uh, they took some special drug, I think, that made them pain or <laughs> something. But, um, but in the end, we get 14 kids running wild, and this causes a state of emergency in the town because there's 14, 14 people at that. I think that was it, right? That's where the 14 comes from. But um, Although we only seem to see maybe five or six of them. Yeah, and, and they definitely had, uh, again, they had traits that the people in the colony had. Um, they're, they're walking weird. They're very savage. Their eyes, I guess they've been living in the basement. Maybe their eyes are going to look accustomed to darkness and that, but, but they're definitely eating people. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure how I got that to happen. Yeah, and they're not really like zombies, I guess. They're, they're more like, kind of like the crazies, you know, in, in the movie The Crazies, where, but I, I don't know how you brainwash someone to become that way. But clearly, like, monstrous and unreachable, bulletproof, one got squished by a car, one got shot several times and just dusted themselves off. Yeah, like. Yeah, uh, and again, what was, what was Perkins, like, idea? Like, did he expect to be killed by the police officer when he was, you know, exposed? And then, like, the kids was just sort of the dessert? Like, I thought he would want to see all the suffering that he spent ten years waiting to unleash upon the town that destroyed his family and had his parents killed and they didn't solve the case, so he's gonna steal kids and turn them into zombies and unleash them back on the town. And again, like, maybe if it was something that was approached with more thought, and it seems to me that, like, the whatever, the financer committee, whatever, internet decided, every step in the chain of this took the darkest path that they could possibly choose. And maybe in another movie that would help it, but it was just like, well, let's get into this Perkins guy. Why did he do all of this? Or... If we're going to have a, a main character of a cop who's mourning the death of his son, like, that's the only thing that we're given to like him because he's an asshole to everyone else that he talks to. And he's an alcoholic and his wife's cheating on him and he's pathetic. <laughs> and, like... I was going to mention that. And, uh, let's make his wife cheating on him, too. And, and uh, that was actually became a big thing because... He finds out when he saves her. Yeah. And she spends the rest of the movie just with this guilt on her face and crying, not because the town's being attacked, but because, you know, he caught her cheating and he hasn't said anything about it. And uh, you just feel that she's, she just looks terrible and uh, he's going to hold this over her forever <laughs> and never let her live it down. There's a moment I laughed out loud. I thought it was hilarious, which is not a good thing. No. I'm sure this movie isn't trying to funny oh it's bone straight this whole but, movie uh, wants to be like dour and effective her guilt is coming over as they're in the police station near the end and uh, and 
all this shit's going on. He's trying to deal with. He's you know vocalizing why he, why Perkins did this maybe or what's happening. But she said, should we talk about about us and uh, or about this? Meaning you know what's happened. And he just puts his hand on her and says, no. <laughs> and, and she just continues crying. <laughs> I thought that was great. I don't know. I just I laugh because he's like his way of saying, uh, "Bitch, it's not about you right now." Okay? Yeah. There's shit going on. Our kidnapped yeah. son is now a feral cannibal zombie thing. So let's put that on the back burner. And also, your boyfriend's dead. So if there's a competition here, I'm winning. <laughs> You're only sorry because I caught you. That's right. Yeah, and you know, at the end, someone has to go through the air vents. Cops says, I'll go. Cheating whore wife says, no, <laughs> no, I'll go. <laughs> Argument did all. He goes, yeah, you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, good idea. You go. Um, I can't remember what her name was. I think it was cheating whore, but that doesn't sound completely right to me. I think it was Janine. <laughs> but uh... Uh, and another actor I wanted to give a shout out to was the. Uh, the clearly older actor that played the guitar-playing boyfriend of their daughter. Yeah. He was probably the biggest pussy, most useless character you could ever um, see in one of these movies. You could just hear the other characters thinking, I wish you would die. <laughs> um, there's a scene he gets his hand cut. Yes, and just and squeals. It. I mean, I'm sure it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's a, that's a painful cut. They didn't even chop a finger off in a movie like this, but yeah, that's gonna need some stitches. That's gonna that's gonna sting. But the guy needs help walking after yeah. that. He has two people helping him. He walks with a limp now because he got his hand cut, and he passes out later. He's you know just a complete wuss, I guess. And uh, this guy dies, and absolutely nobody seems to mind much. Everybody's in the hallway. They see it happen. And uh, maybe they could have saved him, but uh, this, we'll just let this play out. No, dude gets his guts ripped out and we don't care. And the movie wants us to care. When the, you know, the father and daughter watch through a video screen as the mom's getting attacked, it's supposed to be devastating and sort of artfully handled. And I'm not feeling anything. Like, if you're, again, we've talked about this several times this episode, dealing with the destruction and death of an entire family, and I don't feel anything, something yeah. essential is missing here. <laughs> I'll give it some points, um, some positive. There is some good gore. You mentioned the, uh, the boyfriend getting his guts pulled out. That yep. was nicely done. There's a nice uh, face-smashing, eye-stabbing, fingernail-breaking backwards scene uh, <laughs> that comes to mind. Uh, that was pretty graphic. Uh, there is some good stuff, but... Um, in the end, I, I really didn't care much. Yeah. Well, and it does start to have cool moments and sort of have a zombie vibe and some good violence. But by the time it happens, like, I'm already I'm already a little bit checked out from the movie, you know? <clears throat> yeah. But, like, there were some weak actors, but, like, I tried to be a little bit more forgiving, especially if it's a micro-budget movie. But... I really do think that they might have had something here. Like, there's something about the atmosphere that they were going for and the movie that they were trying to make that makes me want to, like, give it more points than it's really worth. 
But I sat back after the credits were rolling and I was like, who could I recommend this movie to? And I just came up empty. <laughs> yeah, and if the question, did I enjoy that? Um, yeah, I, yeah. I do think much. Richard Brake is an interesting character actor. We've been seeing a lot of him, you know, like I say, yeah. in other Rob Zombie movies, and I'll be happy to see more of him. Um, this is one of the early genre entries for him. So if you're a fan of that guy, maybe maybe you'll want to check it out. But again, it was one of those... They did the After Dark Film Festival for four or five years, and uh, they ran extremely hot and cold, and this movie didn't distinguish itself. And I, I do enjoy picking those up when I can. Yeah. You, know, you can usually find used ones kind of cheap, because they're, sometimes you'll find a nice surprise. Oh, yeah. Because you've usually never heard of any of these titles. No. Uh, Just said that in the script. Shut up. Yeah, this was an ad lib or something. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. How did you get to the crash? No, 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 no. Just don't worry about it. It's, uh, I like those little moments. Yeah, that's what Perkins 14 really needed was more wordplay. They should have turned it into airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Over, over. <laughs> yes. The hospital, what is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important <laughs> right now. There is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. Something's in there. We gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. What goes on in this house is a sin. But what goes on under the stairs is a nightmare. Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs. So once upon a time, when uh, this movie first came out and uh, I was a young teenager and, you know, all into the horror genre, I was a lot harder on The People Under the Stairs than I, than I used to be. I still have a bit of skepticism about horror movies that are led by little kids. I have a hard time usually feeling scared for a little kid in these scenarios when they establish a character like Fool who's got the sick mom and the, you know, 
all of the people in his environment telling him that the only path is crime and that his dream of being a doctor is a fool's dream and la 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 la. This kid's gonna come away from this movie fine and he's gonna he's gonna make things better for the whole neighborhood and that's all gonna be okay. And for some reason I let that kind of deflate any of the, you know, horror that the movie was attempting. But in the end of the day I think that it's much more successful at being a social satire and a kind of bleak as shit black comedy. Because the two main villains of this movie, who were both at the time co-starring in Twin Peaks, the TV show, whose influence is being felt all over the place, Everett McGill and Wendy Robbie play the woman and the man, who are brother and sister, who own all these buildings in this ghetto neighborhood, and are terrible, evil landlords, but over and above that have taken to kidnapping children and trying to raise them. But whenever the kid complains or becomes too difficult or, you know, breaks a rule, they vanquish them to the basement space and, you know, make them live lives in prison (laughs) within this building. Enter Fool and these two guys who are helping him break in. One of them played memorably by Ving Rhames. Try to break into the place because they believe that there's a gold coins to be found there and that they're going to make their fortune and they're going to exploit this little kid and the, you know, the adventure it's the Goonies kind of vibe going in almost to it. (laughs) But my God, these villains, (laughs) Wendy Robbie and Everett McGill really fully, fully commit to the whatever fucked up world they're living in. And like, they've been doing this playing house thing for a long time now. Like, uh, and the, everything that comes out of each of their mouths, we learn a little bit more, and it's a little bit more disturbing and a little bit crazier. And they put such a fun energy into the movie that, like, it counterbalances all of the super darkness. Because if we were to really take seriously all of these kids that have been living these lives imprisoned in the walls... And the story of this roach guy who escapes and has been living in the house and been slowly hunted for I don't know how many weeks since he escaped out of there. It's neither funny nor, like, you know, fun. It becomes closer to offspring territory, right? But the movie never forgets that at the end of the day, it's kind of a fun, goofy adventure. And if you go with it the way I didn't when it first came out, I think you can have a lot of fun with the people under the stairs. It's not as high stakes and intense as some of the classic Wes Craven films, you know. This is not Nightmare on Elm Street or The Hills of Eyes or Last House on the Left, but it's not trying to be. It's got its own personality and its own energy, and I kind of respect it for that. Yeah, and 100% what you're saying is there's so much in this film um basically you know this isn't a line from the movie but just to sum it up um hey i'm gonna go hunt a little boy who's hiding inside my walls i guess i better put on my full leather snm bodysuit right now and start blasting my shotgun all over the place that's that's what happens in this movie this guy in this outfit and it's out of left field and it's like And they've trained themselves to hide their madness from the outside world, 
but it seems like as soon as the doors are closed and locked, shit gets weird. As soon as the doors closed, it's cuckoo. <laughs> this mother, father, brother, sister relationship is so messed up. This is not a platonic a sibling relationship. Um, no, they, they call each other mommy and daddy. And uh, there, there's some stuff going on there that I, uh, I'm glad we were not privy to on screen. But um, the one I find the creepiest, I think, is the, uh, the mother. Uh, her whole look to her. She has um, you know, everything down to the extra makeup she wears. Just uh, she's the one that gets a, an intense kind of crazy ending at the end you know, when she's attacking your daughter with the knife. I think it's uh, it's an effective horror movie scene. Oh, it definitely has its moments of suspense. I didn't mean to be dismissive of it. I'm just saying com- comparably to some of the stuff we've seen from Wes Craven. This is oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I mean, it is. There's sometimes I guess you, you could forget it's a horror movie and turn it into sort of a, a strange adventure. There's definitely horror movie elements to it. There's, uh, you know, there is some some good practical gore when uh, he's cutting up some meat off of Ving Rhames' yep. corpse and throwing it around. And, um, and you know, there is, you know, at the end of the day, there is incest going on in this uh, house. And, you know, even the father does walk towards his, you know, not his real daughter, but he's, you know, he's rubbing himself in the groin and, you know, obviously becoming a little bit aroused by that, which is, you know, it shows there's some, inappropriateness going on in that house as well uh, they're not the ideal mommy and daddy after all but um i think this is uh i mean wes craven he's he's gonna be known for you know freddy nightmare on elm street is his his baby and uh and then the scream franchise and his sec probably second i think this might be his you know right up there around the third he'll survive maybe but uh this is a bit more accessible for people checking it out uh it's a fun movie for the most part you're right it gets into a strange sort of 90s feeling especially at the end um you're not worried about that kid when he's sliding down the chimney and no. dropping guy's head. it turns into kind of a silliness and uh you know even with the money flying out and there's an explosion all this stolen money flies through the chimney and it's a happy ending all the uh neighborhood gets to celebrate because Somewhere his mother sat up in bed, suddenly cured from her cancer. Yeah, they went to Disneyland. Yeah. uh, (laughs) No, and all of this was expected, but, like, the weirdness and the the darkness was kind of unexpected. This character of Roach that runs around and that you were talking about is being hunted by this dog and this guy, and I think he's been out for a while. Like, he's been a real thing. Roach and Alice, the sort of favored daughter who hasn't been, you know, exiled to the basement yet. Keep trying to help Fool at least survive, if not escape, his ordeal. And the weird thing about Roach is, like, he's constantly smiling. He's got this goofy grin and, like, warm personality to him. And you think about his situation. He's had his tongue cut out. He's being hunted by a dog and this psychopath with a shotgun. He's been in this house for how many years? He has the constitution within him to use a corpse as a puppet to distract somebody. <laughs> like, And he's warm and friendly and kind of in a weird way the comic relief. Like, uh, It's 
like what else compare this movie to any other like what else is like the people under the stairs what I other movie could accommodate shit this strange I, I, the first one I'd say maybe Home Alone yeah but, uh, <laughs> maybe Home Alone 2 I don't know that's <laughs> what I said they would break guys had but it's it's out there um, with Roach's first introduction I do remember that scene when I was a kid watching this the first time that's when the line is said uh, by my mother, woman, or whatever they called her, but she's about the daughter says she's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Right. And you see that arm kind of go back inside. And uh, and at that moment, you don't know what's going on. You don't know that Roach is an okay guy. But the mystery around that, that's a really creepy line when you don't know any backstory to the movie. There's like... I remember just getting a chill and a shiver as a kid thing. There's a thing living inside their walls and the little girl feeds them. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> and this movie's just starting. Uh, we're getting crazier, but uh, yeah, that's that's a moment where I was always uh, kind of creeped out when I was young watching that, just because the unknown. Yeah. I guess what that is. My uh, question with the ending. So the bad guys are all dead, and... Uh, the people that used to live under the stairs are now walking freely around the street while everyone's grabbing free money. And uh, I wonder uh, what happens now, now that we have these people that used to just resort on cannibalism to survive. The neighborhood was go, weird before. Now it's got a whole other level. What are they going to do now? Are they going to be homeless now? Are they any better off? Or are they just going to be like uh, crazy people screaming on the street and eventually just... Uh, but they're just playing hip hop music in the background. It's supposed to be a happy ending. Yeah. But uh, I wonder what, what happens now. Until the police guys. show up and arrest a bunch of people, and Fool gets shot in the crossfire. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's not the kind of movie they were making. <laughs> I, I get that, but it does have that air of condescension to it a little bit, like. This is like a middle-aged white guy trying to appeal to the urban youth of the day, and you can yeah, sort we of understand your plight. Yeah, I I can relate and I get you and I can write dialogue for you and stuff like this. Like uh, again, I think obviously Wes's heart's in the right place here. Like I'm not really trying to wag a finger on it, but I think that that's felt. It doesn't feel authentic. It feels otherworldly. And I mentioned those two actors are taken from Twin Peaks. At this time in the culture, I don't think you can underrate the influence that Twin Peaks was having on things. Like, all of the movies felt like they needed to be a little bit weirder and a little bit more experimental and funny and odd. And I think that was partly injected into this, too, in an uncomfortable kind of way. Did you ever see the anthology movie Body Bags? It's a John Carpenter did a couple of segments from it, but oh, oh, that, that, yeah, yeah, long, long, long ago. Yeah, it suffers from the same thing. It's right around the same time frame, but it's got the weird, like experimental jazz soundtrack and just weird story beats that are allowed to hang in the air too long. I think that that was sort of having its moment at the time, and at the time it was like really kind of hip and cool to do it. But looking back on it all these years later, it makes an already strange movie that much stranger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a good movie. I mean, I really, I do enjoy this. 
time too, I think. Definitely. Um, one thing I find weird is, well, we start to feel a bit sympathy for these people under the stairs after we realize, oh, these aren't monsters and creatures. These are stolen children. Yep. And uh, so we, we get a bit on their side. But uh, and so we do have to remember, at one point, they were eating that guy's hand. Um, <laughs> broke it and... Well, it was that or nothing, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's what they were yeah, given and, to eat. And then they do what they... They start eating the mother before they all are freed to go get jobs at Subway now and start a new life. Well, and, like, when the original guys, Spencer and Leroy, come into the house to rob it, they kill them right away. They don't try and, like, tell them to leave and call the police or, like... Uh, Please help us get out of this house. No, they they weirdly territorially kill them, which again I don't know if that plot point makes a hundred percent sense. Or again, as you were saying, that their sudden freedom maybe being a negative thing on the neighborhood more than a positive thing on the neighborhood. And it's Perkins fourteen being released from the basement. The people under the sale, you know. That's right. This is a prequel to Perkins thirteen. But it's much better, kind of and it's much more original. <laughs> these are the kind of things you don't think about in the 90s when you're watching the first time, but you know, 20 years later, we start thinking, I wonder what would happen next. <laughs> hey, and a lot of uh, those this era of Wes Craven didn't age that well. When's the last time you watched Shocker? Oh, yeah. I used to love Shocker. I'd like to give that another view. <laughs> <laughs> and... Again, because we loved it when we were kids, there's fun to be had, but it is not aged gracefully <laughs> at all. Um, but again, I, I always give extra points for a movie that has a lot of originality that I can't really compare to anything else. And it, People Under the Stairs definitely is that. It's unique in not just Wes Craven's filmography, it's just a unique movie. It sure is. Zany. Folks weren't right, Scott. I think they weren't, were they? None of them folks had, were right in the head. There was something off about them folk. Um, I, I'm getting the feeling that we're going to have different lists, but it's one of those times we're going to have different lists, but it's not going to be like a fight. We're not going to feel like we're drawing lines in the sand or we're going to have to convince somebody of something. It's like, you know, this is a... Uh, for the most part, a pretty mid-tier list of movies that we're choosing from. It, it's certainly not the worst list I've ever thrown anyone, but it's far from the best. <laughs> what was yeah. your least favorite of these six? Them ain't them folks ain't rat movies, and yeah, why? None of them folks. None of them folks were right, uh, and I agree. I think we're going to be very different. I, we're not going to match up, and 
six on them folks ain't right, I gotta put Perkins 14. It's it's the only movie out of all of them that I, for times, wondered if I wanted to finish. Uh, I just wasn't into it. It wasn't working for me. Um, it, it was the easiest one of all of these to rank. That's where it goes at the bottom for me. Well, thanks for staying through. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to subject you to it. No, uh, you know what? I've seen a lot worse movies uh, this week, even. You and I reviewed I Spit on Your Grave. I mean, like. <laughs> I think I like I Spit on Your Grave more, actually. But, Ouch. Uh, anyways, uh, number five is where I'm going to put The Colony. Um, maybe I, the first viewing, I maybe would have put it a little bit higher, but uh, the ending just left me odd, I think, um, when they're just walking off and everything's good now, got seeds and. I just really felt like I didn't care anymore about, I don't know, it was strange how much my second viewing of it changed, but uh, I didn't get as much out of it. And uh, I'm going to even put your favorite movie, I know you're putting Offspring at number one, so <laughs> I'm going to disappoint you by only putting it at number four. Um, it's uh, I, I, gruesomeness and brutality and just unpleasantness aside, <laughs> I don't know why, I just I still kind of liked it a bit. Um, so it, it ends up over there. Uh, that kind of uh, jackals number three for me. Uh, it kind of it made me feel something, I guess, whether it was despair or just sadness or disappointment or anger, uh, whatever. It got some sort of response from me, and uh, and there were times when I, I felt it was you know suspenseful with these people outside your house. As I said, sometimes that will kind of get me um, that idea of the secluded people who want to break in and they're going to come in and uh, we come to the top two where I kind of thought a little bit what I was going to do and um, I do like I like I like the people under the stairs I think it's great and I like House of a Thousand Corpses uh, but I, I like House of a Thousand Corpses more so uh, people under the stairs goes number two and um, House of a Thousand Corpses by Rob Zombie his debut I'm going to put number one. I just really uh, enjoy that whole creep show aspect of it, or uh, you know, Midway Funhouse sort of horror idea of, uh, of that movie. And uh, a lot of people really shit all over Rob Zombie, and uh, some of his movies aren't that great. Uh, I don't even, I kind of defend his Halloween now, especially, I mean, it's, it's better than the new Halloween ends that we got recently, but this is another conversation for him. Number one. I, I think that's going number one for me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I suspected I it was going to go number one for you. Like, that's that. You're not shocking me with this information. <laughs> well, I'm hoping my, my Captain Spaulding shirt that I'm wearing right now wasn't a spoiler for you. <laughs> hey, you love what you love. Um, look, we're pretty close. It, it, well, by that, I mean we're not close at all. I think we might have gone zero for six. But. I was thinking we may. Um. That's okay. Like, I also gonna drop the caveat that I'm not passionate about any of these movies. Like, for me, it was the list that had the people under the stairs and five other movies in a lot of ways. So, uh, I'm I'm gonna go fall on my own biases and my personal reactions this time. And by that measure, I have to put the offspring at the bottom. Like, yeah, it. I don't know. Like, it was just so 
awful in its feeling and it's not just the subject matter but in 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 how it approached it and like how it made me feel and how it reveled in making me feel that way and like look no judgment if this is your cup of tea uh it hit me on the like wrong day and in a hard way which means it must have something going on there like they did something right to get that big of a reaction from me but I'm not in a hurry to ever watch Offspring again. Like, I would rather watch Perkins 14 again today than Offspring, and Offspring's shorter. But that's the only reason Perkins 14 is in fifth place. It's one of those movies that I was weirdly cheering for when I heard sort of its origins. Like, it had a lot working against it. It micro-budget, sort of crowdsourced, not just by its financing, but the actual plot. Like... It would have been a great story if somehow all those pieces made a great movie. Unfortunately, all those pieces made Perkins 14 and it's not memorable or really worth anyone's time. It's it's kind of like, at the end of the day, a half-assed zombie movie, you know? And there's lots of those. And so in fourth place, I put Jackals. And uh, it, it could be my, like... I'm really fascinated by the subject of cults and I've had lots of uh, good experiences reviewing cult movies fairly recently in the, in the, in the series. And like I did a, a good episode with Dubray about them. And I just think this has been handled better several times. And so it, it, it fails at the cult aspect and it becomes a decent, but not that memorable to me home invasion movie, which is okay, but just not quite what was advertised for me. In third place, I put The Colony, and that's a pretty high ranking for a movie that I feel pretty neutral about, if I'm honest. <laughs> but, um, again, like, it had a modest set of goals, and it more or less met them. Um, but it does feel like product, and there is a part of me that resents movies where I sort of feel like the math that went into it. Yeah, we can sell this. Those horror-starved masses like Scott and Larry, they'll they'll that we chum the water, they'll swim up, and they'll 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 eat it, and we did. <laughs> I put House of a Thousand Corpses in second place. Like, look, I I have. Respect that he had a vision and he executed that vision fairly perfectly within the parameters of what he wanted, you know. he He's good at getting the images from his brain to the screen. I get there. I just think I have a different taste, you know, in horror than Rob Zombie does largely. There was a time where I've said, like, I just keep waiting for Rob Zombie to find that right script and really knock it out of the park. But I'm starting to think it's just never going to happen for me. I want it to, but I'm, I'm no longer the believer that I used to be. People Under the Stairs I'm putting in first place. Even though for a long time I, I kind of would make fun of it or dismiss it as sort of lesser Wes Craven. Upon revisiting it, actually, I found a lot more to like. And I got over my previous snobby teenager issues with it being like a kitty kid-friendly horror movie which at the time was like the worst thing you could be right like i don't know it had to be dark and hard show me offspring when i was 15 not the people under the stairs for some reason you know that that makes a lot of sense actually because yeah i would kind of frown on films that weren't violent enough when i was younger and say oh come on this isn't fun this is too friendly and now i look back on those with fondness and yeah say, you know 
And it was the only movie of this bunch that I could have called fun. Was the people under the stairs for me? I mean, I know you have some fun with House of a Thousand Corpses. But for I, some reason, yeah. I'm sorry if you felt the judgment there. It's all love. Feel the love on this side of the phone. Tell me, you didn't like Fish Boy? <laughs> it's how Fish I will boy. choose to remember Rain Wilson. <laughs> Whenever I see the office, I'm like, hey, sir, look, it's Fish Boy. I want, I Fish Boy should be carved onto that man's gravestone. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I think that's awesome that we went zero for six. I had a feeling that we would. I knew, uh, I, I thought we would, yeah. I'm not mad about it, though. It's not like, how dare you, sir? <laughs> no, I, and it's funny. I could have probably figured that uh, where you put things in. Uh, it, it makes sense. And I like that we have absolutely nothing in common. <laughs> After all these years, <laughs> we, yeah. we, we disalign completely. <laughs> well, congratulations on your zero for six. I'll find some kind of token prize for you. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to do this again soon. Yeah, I think so. That'd be great. Thank you so much, brother. The season is winding down. There's only a few episodes left of the ninth season of Rank and Review. I hope you've been enjoying yourself, and I hope you're spreading the word on the podcast. If you have feedback, you can send it to rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankandreview.ca. I really appreciate all of your ears. It would be super awesome if you could spread the word about the podcast to your other film freak friends so that I can get another listener on board. This is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. Thanks for being there. We'll see you in a couple weeks.